Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, Rami Umptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called An MTC Instructor Goes Through a Faith Crisis, Part 1. Welcome back to another special episode of the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. I've got a guest that I'll bring on in just a sec, and I'm excited to share her experience with the LDS Church. It will illuminate some interesting aspects within the Missionary Training Center. So without further ado, I introduce you all to Megan Spence. Megan, welcome to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. You reached out to me a couple months ago and introduced your background with the church, and it sounded very intriguing, and I just wanted to bring you onto the show to get your experience with the LDS Church out to a wider audience. Before we jump into the meat of the episode, could you give us a little bit about your background? You could tell as much or as little about yourself as you would like. Yeah. um, Thank you again for having me on. Um, yeah, my name is Megan. I grew up in the LDS church, uh, mostly here in Utah. Utah is my home. Spent a little bit of time in Washington, but majority of my upbringing was really in the Wasatch Front. What part of Washington? Uh, I lived in Vancouver, so Southern Washington. Yeah, I spent four or five years of my childhood there. Yeah, I love there. We actually, so I just got married in September and we went to visit my area. We saw my old house and. Oh, very cool. Went to a Sherry's. I always miss going to a Sherry's diner. So that was uh, their pie milkshakes where they toss like a whole slice of pie in there and blend it up. Oh, oh, my gosh. That's a small world. <laughs> if you make it out this direction, let me know that we can get together or grab a bite to eat. And, and uh, it would be it would be great. Yeah, I'd love that. Love to hear your experience with the, that community there, the Mormon community there in Washington. So from Washington, moved back to Utah. Yep. Um, so followed a really generic LDS upbringing. So I served in leadership positions, um, went off to college, uh, served in Institute Council for the Missionary Committee. And then in 2012, Monson made the announcement of the age change. At the time, I was 20. So in this age change, men can serve at 18, women can serve at 19, immediately put in my papers. And uh, served in Anaheim, California, and I went English speaking. And uh, mission was hard; it was incredibly hard at the time. I was dealing with a lot of anxiety, things I wasn't aware of about my mental health. And came back from my mission a little broken, a little um, anxious, but I wanted to to follow God. Right? I wanted to be like this amazing Mormon woman. So naturally, transferred to BYU. So what about what about your mission was so hard? If you want to dive deeper into that, if not, we can proceed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my first experience with MTC, which is really a great prelude to my experience at the MTC, was within like a day or two of being at the Provo Missionary Training Center. I realized that this lifestyle as a missionary was going to be rough, right? And no one really tells you how rough it's going to be. They're just like, it's the best two years of your life, you know? 
I'm like, this is sad. This is the best two years of my life. This is going to be rough. But later into my mission, we served in areas where it was really rich and really poor. And specifically, I served in Anaheim Hills. And there's like the five that like divides like the city in orange. (laughs) And one side is incredibly rich. And the other side are war members that are so, so poor. And so I saw a weird culture on my mission within members. But I also just dealt with some really intense companionship situations. My, uh, I was kind of the very obedient sister missionary as later in my mission. Got the reputation, unfortunately. <laughs> and, which I just thought I was like trying to do the right and follow God and not mess up other people's salvation. But my mission president started calling me the fix-it sister. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We can psychologically break that down. But the last five transfers of my mission, I was with sisters who had gotten in trouble, were on the verge of being sent home, who my mission president, quote unquote, told me I needed to hold the line. And they knew it and I knew it. And so it was a really hard time. I had some some sisters that at one, she threatened to harm herself, you know, um, and if I kept being obedient because it was driving her insane. And so she'd hold that against me. It was weird. And then, well, it's unfortunate, right? Because I think with more perspective after, I'm realizing how much help she really needed and that putting her with someone who was she viewed as a, an oppressor, right? A really strict sister missionary was not what she needed. That's tough. Yeah. So it was just dealing with a lot of people that were angry and my mission president didn't necessarily want to deal with them. And so it was put them with Sister Spence, you know? (laughs) So I I went my mission thinking, man, this is about broke me. And, you know, you get your doubts as a missionary, too, when you're out in the field and you hear some interesting things. I was in a heavy born again area. So they were quoting the Bible to me left and front. A lot of Lutherans, um, <laughs> great people, honestly. But, you know, they made me question a lot of like, why do you think this way? You know, why don't you read the Bible more? Why are you so fixated on Joseph Smith? And so it makes you kind of evaluate your values. But I mean, after my mission, I was still pretty invested in the church. So you serve your mission. It's kind of a rough time. You're trying to be obedient, obviously, but you've, um, you come out of it still faith intact. Where do you go from there? Yeah. So I came back from my mission, uh, convinced I wanted to be a teacher and in particular, an English teacher. My heart goes out to you. I have a soft spot for English. That's what I studied in college as well. I love (laughs) English so much. It's great. It covers a lot of things, but at the same time, you're like a senior in college and thinking, am I going to work at McDonald's the rest of my life? Like, is this <laughs> my, <laughs> like, trying to explain why you're so important, you know, but uh, yeah, so I, I transferred to BYU. My family's big BYU lovers. And so it was kind of just like felt like a natural thing. And um, I applied to the MTC. What does that process look like? How did you how did you find out about the opening and what did the whole interview and hiring process? How did that go? So I came back in 2014. So this is kind of the process then. Um, I had heard it was the best paying job on campus. Right. And every return missionary applies to, you know, who's attending BYU and in general proximity will apply. 
to the MTC. So you put in a general application online, right? And I think at the time they had you do an online assessment as well. And then you hear nothing. You just don't hear anything for a while. <laughs> and so you're like, it feels almost like God rejected you. It's, it's so strange. <laughs> you're just all like, well, I failed. Um, and then I, I think like two months later, I had gotten a request to come in to do a mock interview slash lesson. So you go onto campus, you park kind of away from campus, you walk in, you have to go through like a security gate. And eventually I'm led into this room where these two men that kind of look like they're mid twenties, late twenties. And then they said, okay, can you teach us a three minute lesson? We're going to time you about faith. Just on the spot. Just on the spot. Didn't tell you like no prep. They do give you like, tell you to bring your quad, right? So I had my quad, which, you know, Bible, Book of Mormon, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, Polar Price, all that. I sit there and I don't even know what I said. I like pulled out a scripture and I think I and challenged them to do something at the end of it, right? Like, what's your interpretation of faith? What can you do to work with them? <laughs> you got to hit those preach my gospel points, you know, leave them with a challenge and leave them with a follow up. Yep. And uh, they go, okay, um, you can leave. And I left. I didn't hear anything for three months. So I was like, again, rejection. So confused. <laughs> and so at the time I was working at LDS Philanthropies, which is um, it's kind of a call center there uh, on campus that's raised some money for the buildings and, and different fundraisers. That's like the call center that like reaches out to alumni. Yes. Asking for donations. Yes. So if you got those annoying phone calls, yeah, yeah, it was, it was me. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I worked at a call center too for a minute. It's, it's a thankless it, it's, job. And it, it, it's self-loathing. You're like, I hate me too, but come on, I got to get a quote. So I get a phone call from the MTC out of the blue saying they would like me to come in for a, another interview and very strange. So I, went back into onto the campus, went through the whole process of getting through security because they're very serious about security there. Uh, understandably so. And I get into this big room, there's eight other applicants and they go, we're going to have you teach the entire group about the book of Mormon. And the other teachers got different subjects, right? Which I later found out were like based on MTC curriculum. And I got up there and I was just like, I'm going to just give it all. And so asked a lot of questions, did less talking on my part and more trying to engage them with each other. And then invited them all to make a goal and gave them like a minute at the end to, you know, set priorities for themselves. Right. Because my whole thought was like, if I'm not going to get this job, I'm going to inspire the heck out of them. Right. You know, that's fantastic. So they got done and then I got a call like the next day that I got the job. In that group that you were there, like the, the larger group of teaching the, the lesson all together, what was the ratio of men to women? That is a great question. Um, if that group... If you remember, I know this is years ago. No, there was three of us that were women and then five men. And then the ones that were hiring us, it was one woman and four men. And were these also like young kids right off their mission as well? Uh, the ones hiring us were like their late twenties. Um, later, I found out they were, they were called training coordinators. And I think of the group of us that did that interview of the eight, half of us got hired. And what I found out is that so the MTC gets an influx of missionaries, particularly during the summer, 
And so they're going to hire you if they're going to hire you during the summer, right? That's where they do a larger selection. So when I originally applied, it was like right after the holidays and no one wants to, <laughs> not as many missionaries come in. So they're not really looking to hire. So that's why they later told me it was so delayed. That's because they just didn't have a demand at the time. So what years did you work at the MTC? Yeah. So I got hired right. It was, I think it was April of 2015 and I worked there for three and a half years and I left in August of 2018. So the first year and a half I was there, I was a teacher. So I'm directly teaching missionaries. And then in 2017, maybe like the last month of 2016, I got promoted to be a training coordinator, um, in particular for new teachers. So the contract was for a year that they wanted me to be a training coordinator. And then there was the option of going full time at the end of that contract with if they had openings at the time available. But they tell when you're hired as a teacher initially that it's a three year contract. They don't want you to be there longer than three years. Did they did they tell you why or what their motive was for that? Um, not quite, um, as direct, but the kind of assumption was they want first you to be fresh off the mission. Right. And after three years, you start developing your own ideas of teaching that feel separated from the real world. And the second thing is, is, is they, they want you to generally be a student, right? They want to hire students. It, they, there's a few exceptions to that, but it's far in between. And typically you're not going to be there longer than three, four years. So you were working there part-time while going to school. Yes. So uh, the teaching shifts were in three hour blocks with like prep and recording after. So because you're recording everything that happens in your lessons. So you were given a shift either in the morning or afternoon. So how the, the MTC is set up is you are assigned a district. And I was a teacher over English missionaries serving English missions. Right. So there was no language training. Uh, as part of my teaching. So it's like the shortest amount of time a missionary can be in the MTC is what we were teaching. So when I first started, it was like two weeks because they were still minimizing the length of time because they had some housing issues. Like they couldn't fit as many missionaries in. So they were trying to rapidly get them through, which mostly came from the age change, right? So even though the age change had happened three years prior, they're still feeling the effects. But I think within like, Eight months of me being there, they went back to three weeks. It, it didn't last very long, but usually you're given a district. The average size is probably 12 missionaries. So six companionships um, during the summer or high influx times. I think the highest I ever got was like 16 or 18 missionaries in a classroom, which is a lot. It's, very, it's a lot. <laughs> That's a big class. Yeah. And uh, so I was a, a typically a night teacher. So I taught the night shift which is usually like six, six to nine or five to eight, depending on the schedule. And then I would have a companion teacher that would teach in the morning, usually like before lunch sometime. Let's stick to surface level. So we talked about your life leading up to this. You worked for the MTC for a little bit. You stopped working there. Was it because you graduated or had you moved on with your life? Or what's, what's the transition from there to where we are now? Right. So I worked at the MTC um, for three and a half years. So after I... I I was promoted as a training coordinator. And then um, I decided to go back to, to just teaching there. I was finishing up my degree, um, but I was also starting to go through a faith crisis. While working in the MTC? Yeah. 
which you feel awkward. I mean, I also <laughs> was is unfortunate. I was Relief Society president, my ward. I was attending BYU. I was working at the MTC and I have a faith crisis. And I'm like, this is unfortunate, right? Because this affects everything in my life. So I kept it really quiet. And, you know, my close friends, we would have discussions. And I think they knew that I was just through experiences we can get into later. From the MTC, I was like, man, I don't know. So I was finishing. I just started my last semester at BYU. And not married at this point? No. Single. I think I, I would talk to people that I was going to become a Mormon nun and become like a seminary teacher somewhere. <laughs> you know, that was my, my plan. Because um, I was also at BYU, I took a seminary course to be a seminary teacher because I thought that's a natural progression, right? So maybe get into the SNI side of the church? Yeah. So I did like the student teaching course they offer at BYU. and But my last semester, the faith crisis was overwhelming and I realized I didn't believe anymore. So I had just left the MTC. I told them I was going to leave because I thought maybe if I leave the MTC, I'll get my faith back. Like that was my big thing. I was like, I don't know if I have faith anymore. I attributed it to working for the church. And I was like, maybe I need to separate myself from it. Like I can't cut it. <laughs> I can't keep faith with that. I've talked to a couple of people that have worked at the church with the church and how their faith transition kind of coincided with their tenure as an employee of the church. Working for the church doesn't necessitate that someone does have a faith crisis, but how did that affect your belief? Because it's obviously, um, um, from what you've said, like a big factor in why you stop believing. Your faith crisis had to have felt different from what so many other people experience. Help me get into your mind a little bit. Being a teacher didn't really affect my faith crisis. It felt just kind of like serving a mission again. It was really almost faith fulfilling at times. But things start happening when, first, missionaries ask a lot of deep doctrine questions that I can't answer. So naturally, I go home and research it so I can't answer it. Because you have access to the internet. You have access to things that they don't. That they don't. <laughs> and um, I always use LDS sources, you know, because I was kind of trained. You can't look at anything aside from things produced by the church directly. And, and that's where a lot of questions came up. So that initially started happening. Then I think to answer your question about why people do leave who work for the church or why people who work for the church say it's hard is when I became a training coordinator, it was like seeing the man behind the curtain of how the church decides to teach things. Pulling back and seeing the wizard, who the Wizard of Oz really is. And just seeing what they care about, right? And I found the higher I went up, the less women I saw too. To one point where I was in a meeting and they were talking about a new opening for a supervisor above us. And I noticed there's only men. So I'd asked in the meeting, I said, is it a, an ecclesiastical position? Meaning, is it a calling? They go, no, no, it's a job. And I was like, is the priesthood required? And they got like really awkward <laughs> and they go, um, no. I was like, why are there no women? And they're like, oh, women just don't apply. Which I knew was a lie. Because interesting, at the time when I was working there, missionaries, it was almost half, half men, women, elders and sisters. Um, and at some areas, like sometimes we would find, get like stats, at least from the English area, we're like, oh, there's actually more sisters in the missionary mission right now in the MTC. Oh, interesting. Which was exciting. Um, I don't think leaderships thought it that way. I think they saw it as an issue with elders. But um, then as you got higher to teachers, 
there'd be slightly more men than women, but only slightly. Then you got to training coordinators and it was like a quarter were women. And then you got to supervisors. And in like one area, we had like 60 and three of us were in a coordinator position. And then there were three women that were secretaries and then like 40 some odd men. And then above them, only men. So it was weird because I knew teachers were applying. I knew me and all the other women were applying. That were the that were the coordinators or that were the teachers? Well, at the time when I was a coordinator. Just making sure I'm following. Yeah. Yeah. So the so you have the teachers. There's like a 50-50 ratio, right? Then they apply. And then you see that there's a quarter that are women above them. And then above the quarter women is no women. So I was kind of in the quarter women area where there's like 60 people in our area. Six of us are women, but three are secretaries. So only three of us are actually training coordinators. And that was disturbing because I didn't understand why. Because I knew teachers were applying to coordinator positions. I knew all of us women as coordinators were applying to higher positions, but that wasn't being reflected. So that was another element that kind of deterred me a little. So this is going on in your mind as you're going through a faith crisis working for the church. You're seeing that there your potential, if you wanted to make a career out of this, was severely limited. Yes. One thing that was really shocking was I was in a meeting as a training coordinator. We're talking about like the English department training. We get an announcement. We see the church news announces in like 2017. It was the summer of 2017 that women finally get paid maternity leave for the church. It sounds like satire, but it's real. It's real. Also with that was women can now wear pants. Like who worked for the church. So this lady I worked with, which she was a spitfire, I have to tell you. She's like a lawyer now. She's amazing. She goes, finally, we can wear pants because Provo gets cold. <laughs> Just from like, it, like I hated wearing skirts and dresses while hiking my butt into camp, you know, to <laughs> campus. So she goes, well, can we finally wear pants? Because the, they weren't quite sure if this applied to missionaries yet. Now they some missions allow it. I don't know if it's like full scale at this point, but our supervisor turned to us, he laughed and he goes, no, you have to, <laughs> we were just, okay. So it, there were some shocking things. I'm like, why in 2017 are we're like female employees for the church finally getting paid maternity leave? Why are we finally being able to wear pants? Like what a weird thing. That's wild to, to offer maybe a little kindness to them. Maybe it's because they don't have very many women employees that it's not an issue that gets pushed as often. Not that that's a good thing. I think that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that an institution run and organized solely by men, this is exactly the sort of problems that you would expect, or at least that I would expect. Yeah. Well, I had talked to a, a seminary teacher when I was looking into like becoming that profession. And they were saying that um, seminary, people who would hire seminary teachers for a profession, uh, deterred women from joining it full time because they wanted them to focus on family. And that was a, a recent thing for them that that attitude was changing. So your point is, is very valid, right? Like they could argue, well, it's catering to mostly men employees, but then that brings another problem. Why? You know, if the church is men and women, if there is a lot of more faithful um, women at times, even in the MTC, there's more sisters serving. Why is that not being reflected higher up in decision-making? So 
that was that was hard to see. And then uh, just kind of seeing how they were changing curriculum. And they had done some surveys out in the field. This is kind of a whole other thing, but. Well, maybe let's let's jump back to your story then, and then we'll come back and kind of hit bullet points of some of the big topics. Great idea, great idea. Those are some of the things going on through your head as you're working there, going through this faith crisis. You stop working at the MTC, you said, 2019? August of 2018. Okay, you stopped working there in 2018. Where do you go from there? Where does Megan's life take her from that point? Yeah, so at that time, I had been released as release ID president for a couple months. Um, and I was finishing up my last semester at BYU. And I finally started looking into some of the doctrinal things. I'd like, I wasn't working at the MTC anymore. So I felt like I had more of a, a liberation to investigate some things without worrying about my job. Because every six months we have to do interviews like to maintain our temple recommend and to make sure that we are being above and beyond very worthy and almost living a, a missionary lifestyle. They would do your temple recommend interviews biannually. Yeah. So every six months they checked for them. They checked or you had to re-interview for it? <laughs> I just want to make sure I'm understanding what, what's happening there. It's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they would check for the actual temple recommend, right? Which usually if you're in endowment, I think it lasts like two years. But they also ask you a bunch of questions and you sign like a series of three documents. That is kind of feels like a professional version of a temple recommend interview. Because <laughs> it's like, and it's even a little more intense. Like, are you scripture reading daily? Are you praying? Now, if you said no on any of those, or if you like came to your supervisor, again, this is as, as a teacher to a training coordinator. And we're like, I'm struggling with prayer. They want to be like, get out of this holy ground, right? <laughs> but there would be kind of a, thank you for being honest. Let's work on that together. But are you like, are you willing to commit to this? Right. And there was that intense pressure to, to be just a little bit above. They said it's less than a, it's, more than a job, less than a calling, is what they always said. And you had said that you had always been, at least um, from your comment earlier, as a missionary, you were always the most obedient, striving to be the best version of yourself that you could according to the rules within the church. Was that something that was that impacted you, or was that was that just like par for the course of what you had already been doing? It just continued. I think a, a perpetual problem I had. I think. Uh, especially with anxiety was that I was careful what shows I'd watch with my roommates or cause I just wanted to always have the spirit with me because I felt cause, cause what they're kind of teaching you is you need to do these things. So you have the spirit. So you don't hinder the missionary spirit and their learning process. So I felt if I didn't reach that standard, I was failing missionaries and eventually failing investigators, right. Or people who were, could join the church. So I was always following BYU rules. And I mean, BYU also has strict housing rules and, and different things. So I'm also following that. And I just felt my life was overcome by these obsession to be perfect always. So I wouldn't fail in some sort. So back in the fall of 2018, I'm starting my last semester at BYU. And I just, I'd been released as release ID president. Um, Cause I kind of like reached my tenure there. And then MTC, they said, they actually said I could stay for another six months as a teacher that I didn't need to like, you know, cause they knew me. They're like, we know you, Meg, you can stay, you know? But I was like, no, I think it's, it's my time. Had you already stopped believing completely at this point? I think by the time I put in my two weeks officially, I, I didn't believe. Not at all. 
Um, and I hadn't even investigated at that point. I just, it was kind of how I would equate to learning Santa's not real in my, like, that's how I viewed it. I feel like the, you kind of like intuited it and rather than like actually had gone and researched. Yeah. I was, I was just like seeing how they operate, seeing these experiences. I knew it it wasn't revelatory. It wasn't spiritual. And I knew there's a lot of manipulation. And so I was like, no, no, no. I, I'll leave the MTC. This is my last hope. I'll leave the MTC. <laughs> Even my family was saying, just leave the MTC. Like just so you can get your faith back, you know, because my parents knew. So you were open with your family about your, your struggles with your faith. I would say casually, like we'd be in conversation. My brother and I loved to like top talk deep doctrine. And I'd be like, yeah, I would be like, kind of joke. I'd be like, you know, man, MTC working for the church is hard. I'll tell you it, it's a, it's one on the testimony. And my brother would laugh, you know, and say that he knew someone who felt the same way. And, uh, huh, 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 huh. and then I'd go to my, to my mom and be like, I'm, I'm being kind of serious. It's, it's, it's hurting me. She's like, get out of the MTC, get away from it. Like, don't, you know, but they wouldn't tell that to their friends. They'd be like, oh yeah, my daughter works at the MTC. She's great. You know, <laughs> but, uh, within two months of leaving, um, I also had made the decision. I was also upset with kind of some of BYU's stances. And I also knew that I, I was up for a temple recommend interview actually. And I knew I could answer them. And so I, I decided to leave the, MT- the, sorry, leave BYU as well that semester. And I ended up finishing. Oh, so you transferred out. I transferred out. Cause again, I was like, I have to, I had this level of, I have to be honest, right? Cause you're raised that way with the church. When this was right in between, if I'm not mistaken, between the policy of exclusion and before it had been reversed. Yes. Yeah. If I'm getting my time frame right. Yeah. And so I just felt that this was not the place. And I was being dishonest to myself and it was making me sick. And honestly, like I was, it was physically making me ill. And so I left, ended up transferring to the U got my degree. Um, and now it's kind of an overview, met an amazing guy, got married. He's an ex Mormon. Not, I don't even know if ex Mormons, he was baptized when he was eight because his mom wanted him to have friends in Utah, <laughs> but he knows nothing. And it's, 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 it's actually quite wonderful. Cause he'll ask me something. I'll go on like a two hour tangent. He's like, well, I'm not asking about Easter again. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so you leave, you leave BYU, go to the U did you completely like at that point had no relationship with the church or what, what was that transition from transferring out to now you find yourself as, as not affiliated with the church anymore? Yeah. So I left BYU. I actually still was going to a local, uh, I moved to Salt Lake because also during this time period, it happened really quickly before I'd left. I'd actually moved from Provo to Salt Lake because my housing contract was up. And so you know, I'm leaving behind callings. I'm leaving behind job. And then I didn't want to commute to BYU. And I was like, this is my time to leave. Right. So that also added to it. So I went to a congregation locally, a singles ward, amazing Bishop, really nice guy. I was, I've always been very uh, privileged to not have bad bishops. <laughs> and this guy, he actually, <laughs> I say that because there's so many people who do not have that I know I <laughs> had a lot of comments that I could have said, but I didn't say any right. of them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a whole thing. But um, he actually knew a woman who was a historian in downtown Salt Lake. Um, because I, I had started investigating some things about the church, right? Um, a lot of doctrinal things, 
more of a deep dive. I always kind of knew a lot of the deep doctrine things we would call, I don't know, that's a term we use, but. Yeah, within the institution, that's something that they say. It's never, it's never clear what it is actually referring to, though. Well, so that's so interesting. This is kind of a side tangent. So at the MTC, Elder Bednar really hated the term deep doctrine. Um, so he even did a, like, I think it was a little talk at the MTC that we would show a video of where he goes, because missionaries love to dive into deep doctrine when they don't need to, right? It's kind of his, you just need to keep it simple. And so he said, the best way to know if you're, you know, teaching deep doctrine is to ask yourself, does this pertain to my eternal salvation, right? Does this ensure that I'll get back to my heavenly father? If it doesn't, it's not important. And he's like, that's what we call deep doctrine, stuff that's not important. It doesn't pertain to your eternal salvation. So we would teach that to missionaries, right? Like if you're worried where co-op is or you're worried about these other things, right? Does it pertain to your eternal salvation? If not, you know, get my early study voice on. It's fine. (laughs) It was interesting because sometimes missionaries would ask deep doctrine questions that actually would, but we need that later, but. Because that distinction is, is, I mean, it's clear, but it doesn't rule out some of the really important questions that people ask that are typically ascribed as deep doctrine. Right. But it also kind of explains why as Mormons, we are the way we are with questions, right? Is we're kind of told, does this pertain to your eternal salvation? No, put that on a shelf. It doesn't matter. God will answer it later. And so you kind of understand. Deal with it at some point down the road. Right. And you kind of understand why so many Mormons don't address these deeper issues because there is no answer for them. Or if there is, it's one they're not ready to receive. That's sort of the subjects that I love diving into on some of the solo episodes that I do. I love thinking about problems that don't have good theological answers. It doesn't always mean that there is no God or that you know you shouldn't be a Christian or whatever. It just means that it encourages a more mature view of religion and spirituality. Those are some of my favorite topics to discuss. Yeah. I mean, there's so many times where missionaries came to me late at night, we're getting done with a lesson and they'd be crying about something. And I'd pull the, the elder sister aside and I'd be like, what is going on? And I just remember one elder, this really shook me. He, he's crying. Cause we were talking about the plan of salvation lesson. And I was like, elder, what's going on? And he said, I just, I'm really struggling with something right now, you know? And I had asked, I was like, hey, what's going on? Maybe I can help and we're pointing you in the right direction at least. And he said, my father died when I was a baby. My mom was sealed to him. And um, she later met a guy who I consider my dad who raised us. They're not sealed. Um, only because my mom cannot be sealed to more than one man right now. And uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm having to give up one for the other. And I don't know why God would design it like this give up the father that he knows for the father that he doesn't know. Not that the first was a bad guy, but he just has a relationship with the one that he's not sealed to. And I mean, it's something I don't think a lot of LDS people know until they've gone through it is that, you know, men can be sealed to like a dead spouse and a current spouse, but women, it's not very, it's, it's a lot more difficult. And I think that the general standing right now is you can only be sealed to one um, with only a few and far exceptions. Yeah. I had a missionary companion who presented the same problem to me where he was the exact situation that you're describing with the addition that he had a younger sibling that was born uh, from his mom and his stepdad. And he asked me, he's like, and this was something that he and I tried to research as best we could. And this is 
you know, very limited internet days for missionaries. And, you know, we'd sneak to the internet cafes and Google stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he asked me if his little brother, and this is what we were trying to figure out, is if his little brother would be sealed to his mom and his dad that had passed away, or if his little brother would be sealed to his stepdad and his stepdad's um, spouse that had passed away as well. And he just didn't know if this was going to be his brother in the afterlife or not. Oh my gosh. That is, it's a problem. And it's one of those things where like, ultimately there wasn't a good solution. And, and the, the answer that, that he and I came to at the point was, we have no idea. I guess God will figure it out down the road. Isn't that a great Band-Aid we put on so many things. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I think if I'm reflecting on it, I think I said the same thing. I'm like something of a, a, like a redirect. Like, are you following your covenant path? Is your parents, or, you know, are they? Then God will work it out in the end. And that's really me very accurately saying, I have no idea. It's kind of a plot hole, isn't it? You know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I have a lot of scenarios like that. Or missionaries be like, I read the CES letter. and you know, being like, okay, I'll, I'll look into this or maybe I can, cause your intention going into a lot of these, just like look into doctrine. It's to find the right answer to support the church. You're not going in there to be like, I will tear this down. Right. Like I'm not there yet. I still, you know, I'm in, in the church. Yeah. Well, the premise that we all come to these problems with is that there is an answer. We just don't have it yet. The premise isn't, oh, I'm going to do research and I'm going to find out that the church isn't true. That's not how we go into these questions. We go into them fully expecting there to be a good reason or a good explanation for the problems that we're encountering. Yeah. And I think also hoping we'll get a spiritual confirmation of that as well. That, you know, and typically we, we do get something of that and it satiates the concern for a time. Here, we're going to jump back in time a little bit because we kind of went forward to where you are now. Working in the MTC, you're encountering all of these, uh, all these issues or maybe... It's not super often, but it's something that's sticking with you. What was your overall feeling like in maybe reflecting back on your time working there? Good vibes, bad vibes? Do you feel like it was a good time working there? What, what are some of your thoughts as like the larger perspective of your time at the MTC? I would say the best part of the MTC is going to be the missionaries every time. They were the best. They were just like these really faithful, devote young adults who just made me excited about teaching and learning and to see them grow and develop not only like teaching skills, um, but also as just like adults was rewarding. And I felt like an honor to be a part of their lives. So they were hundred percent the best part. So if I looked back fondly in any way, it was always the missionaries, not the system itself. But as a training coordinator, I, I think my overall feelings were, I didn't realize how sexist the church was and it shocked me. I also didn't realize how unrevelatory, I don't even know if that's a word. I just made that up. <laughs> just how lack of revelation ran the church. And it was a lot more of a business. You can make up words as long Perfect. as we both know what we're talking about. It's, it's the confidence <laughs> by which you say them, right? Um, <laughs> I just realized it was run like a business and um, that revelation wasn't a major factor. And uh, manipulation was, and and you know, and that was kind of hard. That was hard to take in. If revelation isn't a factor, are there implications on the institution? 
because of this disparity of men to women that you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, if revelation's not occurring and lack of representation is there, I felt as a woman that there was no way there was instead of like these leaders being like a connection to God, it felt like they were inhibitors, especially to the female experience for a lot of, in a lot of ways. But I I also don't think it's just limited to that. Right. And we were told often in the MTC mission, uh, baptisms are declining like crazy. And that was a big issue. They were constantly trying to figure out why are they declining? And there was arguments between the business side and the ecclesiastical side of the MTC. Because how do you collect data that reflects testimony? And they all just wanted data that they couldn't quite collect. And you have these, President Nelson coming down pretty hard, saying, well, maybe we need to call them friends, not investigators. Maybe we need to stop using the fundamentals of teaching. But never quite getting to the point that maybe there's a bigger issue why people aren't joining this church. You know, what if there's things we need to change in-house, right? There was kind of, you know, issues with mission presidents going rogue and creating weird curriculum environments. And <laughs> so it was like, it doesn't matter what we do at the MTC. There's so many roadblocks and a lot of red tape to get through. But it's, it was unhelpful. I left the MTC thinking this is a, this is a mess. And if this is just one aspect of church organization, I can't even imagine, you know, higher up. As you worked there, you, I'm assuming you were exposed um, more often to the leadership of the church, general authorities, Quorum of the Twelve, and the First Presidency. Were you directly exposed to the uh, general leadership of the church, or was this by proxy? You were the information that they were teaching, or their devotionals, if you will, that they do. This was disseminated down to you. What was what was kind of the day to day like? How often did you see general authorities, and were you, as an instructor, privy to those meetings with them? So most of the time, they were disseminated, right? So kind of where the the leadership goes is, I was the training coordinator, and then I had a supervisor who was underneath, like a training head. So my supervisor, the guy directly above me, would be in meetings like those uh, with authorities and and big figures. And he'd even go out and do surveys. And then he would present the data to us. The the time I would see general authorities, once a year, they did the mission president training. So they would call a mission president and they'd go to the MTC for one week. And they would get pampered. (laughs) They would get... You know, they would go to different classrooms. They would be taught the curriculum in one week, which I mean is a little iffy that that's all they get. And they run a mission for three years, but you know, and there would be general authorities that would come visit. So we would prepare teachers who would prepare their missionaries. Like you need to wear like the best of your missionary clothing, pretty much like make sure you're wearing your suit jackets and everything. And then as a training coordinator and and then a few times as a teacher as well, we would shuffle the mission presidents to different rooms so that they could get trained. And in that process, you would see authorities. So the one time I spent the most was I was outside of room waiting for a mission president with about 10 other teachers and training coordinators and people that had been volunteered and signed extra work to do this. And Elder Bednar came out with his wife and our kind of whole agenda was you do not interact with them and you make sure they don't, with any of them? No, you do not. Um, and you make sure that missionaries avoid them, right? They'll talk to the missionaries in the seminar or in their speech they do on Sundays, but you're avoiding what they kind of thought would be chaos, right? 
And which I thought was weird, you know, it's definitely not like, you know, Christ going out to the everyday people and it's more, <laughs> you know, they're celebrities. But I remember Ben and I like came really close to us and sat in like kind of stood in a circle waiting to go into this room. And no one said a thing. Everyone was like so nervous. And he, his wife just kind of smiled. And I just remember how short he was. Like, I'm a very short person. I'm like, this man is short. He kind of turned to us and it was an awkward silence. And I think he, he said something innocuous, kind of just like, well, this is fun, you know? And <laughs> everyone just died laughing only because they were just trying to break this awkward silence of, oh my goodness, here's an authority. And he said nothing. And he just looked straight forward. And we just stood there in a the hallway. And I was like, this is so strange. And then he went in, you know, and we took our mission presidents. But that was a lot of the interactions, right? They'd be in passing. We weren't supposed to talk to them, look at them. And the most direction we would get is, you know, my supervisor would be like, um, President Nelson doesn't want us to use the word investigator anymore. He wants us to use the word friend. And as an English major, I'm like, that's a nightmare. Like, let's change every book and get that, you know. I was I know. like, how are we supposed to address them? What is it? Every pamphlet we've ever done. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that's such a rewrite nightmare. And I don't know if they quite stuck to it. Uh, you know, I don't know if it kind of got blown over. Also, like the curriculum, we we teach like eight fundamentals of teaching. There's like the doctrine of Christ, you know, revelation through the Book of Mormon prayer, so on, so on, so on. I think President Nelson got the impression that that was causing low baptisms, like that curriculum was flawed. And so I remember one training, we get our supervisor and he goes, okay, so President Nelson doesn't want us to use the word fundamentals, but we're still going to teach the curriculum the way it is. And I was, I rose my hand in the, the meeting and I said, okay, so we're still teaching everything exactly the same. We're just not using the word fundamentals. <laughs> and he goes, yes, until we figure out something better, which while I was there, we never did. We just kind of like, didn't use fundamentals, the word. Were they averse to the idea or maybe the um, the connotation of like a fundamentalist religion? Is that kind of the idea that they were trying to distance themselves from? Yeah, I mean, we never quite got the official why, which you don't really, you're not supposed to ask why. But that for us that were like more like history in touch, we were like, oh, yeah, he's probably just thinking that it's connecting us to like FLDS or something. And I kind of learned a pattern with President Nelson is if he doesn't like a word. You know, whether it's Mormons or friends or fundamentals, he comes down hard and he he does come down hard. He's him and Holland love to come to the MTC to chastise people. <laughs> but uh, so it was just kind of like, why does this matter? You know, like what a what a silly thing to worry about. But, you know, you don't say that you just kind of go, OK, but it does make you aware that there's kind of this detachment from the business and ecclesiastical. Right. Because like my supervisor would go out to missions and view mission presidents, but he could not correct a mission president. He had to wait for an area 70 to correct a mission president because the mission president is a calling and is ecclesiastical. And so in that way, it's higher. So here's my supervisor. He's been working at the MTC and been doing trainings and teachings for years, but he can't correct a mission president. He just has to observe and then report. So there's a conflict constantly that, you know, here's the business side that are saying this isn't working, but ecclesiastical is like, well, I've been called. And so maybe I know better because I have God, but it's like, but we also claim that we have revelation in our teaching and, you know, this has been a fantastic chat. I know from our outline, there's so much more that we wanted to cover. Let's, um, 
let's get you back on the on the podcast next week. We'll go over maybe some more um, details and some more um, specific things that happened while you were at the MTC. Um, I think this is a subject that uh, the listeners are going to absolutely love. So let's, if you're okay with that, let's get back next week and we'll we'll dive right back in. Before we before we end, is there anything else? Any final thoughts on on our discussion from today that you would that you want to say or that you want to leave off the listeners with? No, I mean, I, I think if anyone's thinking about going on, on a mission, I think doing their research is really important. So I can't wait to kind of talk to you more about what that experience is like. Thank you so much for coming, Megan, and I look forward to our next chat. Thanks for sticking around and listening to the full episode. This has been a pleasure to chat with Megan, and I'm excited to bring her back on next week to continue our discussion about the MTC. If this is content that you enjoy, please be sure to like and subscribe and follow, follow it on wherever you're streaming this right now. Share it with family and friends and wherever you find yourself out there. Currently writing that five-star review for this awesome podcast you've been listening to called Ramium to Ruminations. I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>